Okay, we're at the part where Pharaoh has vindicated Joseph. And I think you and I could see that when God chooses to clear your name and vindicate you, that it's going to be on a level far above anything you could ever do in your own self-defense. So Psalm 37 is good. Wait on the Lord. Don't fret yourself because of what evildoers are doing to you. Just don't fret about it. Delight yourself in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And the Lord will make your bright your righteousness to shine as the bright noon sun, as we read in Psalm 37. This, this is a good example of it. Joseph, at the age of 30, is not the same person he was when he was 17. He's learned to love his brothers. We need to appreciate the fact when God gives you authority, it's never to dominate, it's never to lord over. It's always authority to save, authority to serve. And Joseph has got to this point in his life where he's understood that. All elders, all pastors, all ministers are supposed to know that lesson. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1, 2, 3, 4 make that very clear. Anybody who God puts in authority is not the Lord over people, but to serve. It's power, power to serve. Now when we get to this point in Joseph's life, only now, after all of these years of waiting, only now does he understand why God gave him the promise. And it's obviously for a very different reason than what he ever anticipated some 13 years ago. He understands now that there is a famine. But he still doesn't know everything yet because there's seven years of plenty and his brothers still have not come down to him. And it's a couple of years into the famine before his brothers actually make it. It's 22 years have gone by and in Genesis chapter 42 they come and bow down to him. And verse 9 in particular says, And Joseph remembered the dreams. Boy, what a thought that is. And Joseph remembered the dreams. Now, if Joseph had learned to love his brothers, then I'd like to ask the question, why did he treat his brothers so roughly, so harshly? What was he doing throwing them into prison? Boy, that doesn't sound like love to me, does it? doesn't sound very loving to a child when the parent disciplines a child. And for you and me, it doesn't feel very loving when God decides to discipline us. Let's appreciate there are two stories happening at the same time here. I could tell you this story from the perspective of the ten older brothers... Or I can tell you the same story from the perspective of the governor. Because they're both looking at this story from two very different ways. There are two agendas happening. From the perspective of the ten brothers, all they want is to come get their needs met. That's it. They don't care to know who the governor is. They're not seeking any relationship with Egypt. They've only come to get their needs met and go home. Thank you very much. Sounds like people who come to church, doesn't it? <laughs> Let me just come to get my needs met. I'm only here when I'm in trouble. Come lay your hands on me and then just, you know, heal me. Give me, give me some food. We're, we had a hard time. Can the church help us out? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're only here to get your needs met. And you're not seeking your... Matter of fact, you don't even know who the governor is. Matter of fact, you don't even care to know who he is. You really don't. You see, they bow down to the governor not knowing who the governor is. But the governor knew all about them. That sounds like the Lord, doesn't it? You don't have a clue about him. But he knows everything about you. You see, Joseph had an agenda. I'm confused. Is this Joseph or is this Jesus? Because Jesus, when he prayed for his 12 disciples, 
He said, Lord, that they may be where I am. What Joseph wanted was his brothers to become joint heirs. Does that word sound familiar to you? To be joint heirs together with him in the glory that he had received. Is this Joseph or Jesus? Who am I talking about? He wanted his brothers to be joint heirs together with him. But we have a major problem. And here is the major problem. Have you ever read these scriptures that the drunkard, the murderer, the, the thief, the, you know, all those fleshly things, and they that practice such things shall not, N-O-T, if you don't know how to spell that word, shall not, that's N-O-T, inherit the kingdom. And here's the problem. Joseph wants his brothers to inherit with him, but they are all the above. Are they murderers? You should see them in Genesis 34. Take a look at Levi and Simeon and see what they pulled off to the men of Shechem. Are they adulterers? Please look at Reuben, the firstborn. Are they liars? Well, they've been living a lie for 22 years. Jacob still has no clue what happened to Joseph. The problem is, they are all the above, and therefore they are disqualified from becoming joint heirs together. And so Joseph, who now sees the same as God sees, he sees the end from the beginning. You see, he's been through the process himself. He understands a little bit of it now. He sees the end from the beginning, does to his brothers what God had did to him. Joseph, his goal is to make his brothers fit, make them qualified to be joint heirs, but they have no idea that's what his goal is. All their goal is, is give me some food for my belly so I can go home. Two different agendas. So they can't understand this governor. As a matter of fact, their perception of the governor is that he's an evil man, that he's a, a wicked man, he's an unfair man. Just like some people think in the trials of life that God is unfair and if God really loved me, he wouldn't do this. And well, God wants to make you a joint heir. And I'm sorry if we're liars and cheaters and murderers and thieves and adulterers and shall I continue? You're not qualified. And so he has to make you qualified. And in order to do that, he's going to have to go fishing inside your heart to stir up things you would rather not have stirred up. He's going to go fishing for this thing called unconfessed sin, for lifestyle, for all sorts of stuff, and you don't want it brought up. But unless it's dealt with, you're not inheriting. Are we understanding the principle? So it feels awful, but the end result is being a joint heir together with Christ or, or Joseph. Who am I talking about here? <laughs> You see, the brothers are unfit for the kingdom. Therefore, sin has to be, now let me use the word, discovered. Find that obscure book called Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 4. If you don't know where it is, it's right after Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Go to this book, Lamentations. Chapter 4, and the very last part of verse 22. The very last part, verse 22, where it simply says, Old King James Bible says, He will discover your sins. Or you might have a version that would say, He will reveal, expose your sins. Now go to uh, another verse in Proverbs 
But not yet. Keep your finger in, in Lamentations because I'm going to come back. Another verse in Lamentations, but go to Proverbs just for a second. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse number 13. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He that covers his sins shall not prosper. But he whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy." Now, with that in mind, think of the 10 older brothers. He that covers his sin. Are these 10 brothers covering sin? Have they ever told the truth yet? They're covered. They, they, matter of fact, they committed this, and it's buried deep in their conscience. They don't want it woken up. They really don't. They don't want to dig for it, and they're just hoping that they can just go eventually die to the grave without having to go through the horror of reliving some of this stuff. But unfortunately, if you cover your sin instead of get it right. Your Bible says you're not going to prosper. You leave things undealt with. You've got too many skeletons in your closet. You're leaving things undealt with. You're not going to prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them, it says, shall have mercy. And so when God begins to deal with us, well, look what Lamentations chapter 3 has to say. And verse... 39. Lamentations 3.39. When God starts to deal with it, it says this. Wherefore does a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. What does that mean? That means when God's dealing with you, why are you complaining? He's dealing with you while you still got life. He hasn't let you die. And so when God starts dealing with these sins, well, if you're alive, you should be grateful because he's dealing with them instead of letting you die in them. So why should a living man complain? Or to put this in New Testament words, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, you know, in the context of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11:31 and 32 says, If we would judge ourselves, there's no need for God to judge us. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord for a purpose, so that we would not end up being condemned with the world. There is a judgment to come. I would rather have it now than then. How about you? Because if I have it now, I do get to change. If I wait to judgment day, it's too late. The verdict is the verdict. If God will deal with me now, why should I complain while I'm alive? There's an important, important principle there. Now, Joseph obviously never read the epistles of Paul, but he seemed to have the wisdom of Paul. Because Paul would say in Romans 12, verse 14, that if you're truly a spiritual person, you're going to bless those that persecute you. I don't know if Joseph ever read Romans 12, verse 21. Not likely. Paul had never written Romans yet. But Romans 12, 21 says, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good and this is what Joseph is uh, going to have to to do so in order to prepare these men for glory for being a joint heir he has to appear to them as an awful man you should have been at that church service that night I mean, everybody, I mean, the healing line was there. We're praying for people, and people come for the hands being laid on them. And, you know, we lay hands on them, and, man, a lot of them fell on the floor speaking in tongues. And 
That person gets healed and that person gets delivered. There are miracles everywhere. Everybody comes up. But when it's your turn to come up, nothing happens. Everybody else is healed except you. You should, I mean, have you been to prayer meetings like that? Church services like that? Everybody's getting gloriously touched but you. As a matter of fact, you've got sin in your life. <laughs> um, instead of getting a miracle, you get trials. Have you been to church services like that? Everybody else is blessed, but no, you get trials. And when they, I mean, what, is, what kind of a healing line is this? Everybody is blessed, but when it's our turn to get our bread, our turn to get food, this governor seems to change his disposition, and he, and he accuses me of sin. What he says, you are spies. To see the nakedness of the land are you come. You are spies. <laughs> you know what Joseph is doing? Joseph is making them relive their sin. I mean, when God wants to get your attention, he knows what one word will do it. In the case of these ten brothers, it's the word spy. Do you know why? Because 22 years ago, that's exactly how they referred to Joseph, the little tattletale. Always reporting to Father our evil deeds. Spy. And it was because they hated him as a spy on top of those dreams that he had. Well, Let's get rid of them. Get rid of this nuisance. And you know, they've carried that with them for 22 years. And they've tried to ignore it. They tried to live as if that wasn't in their conscience. They tried to bury it. But in order to make you a joint heir, God's got a shovel out. He's going to start digging into the depths of your heart. And the way he does it here is use the word spy. And immediately... All that where you're trying to forget in your life flushes to the surface of your conscience. He knows exactly what he's doing. The Bible says in verse 7 of chapter 42, He made himself strange to them. Please remember, he looks like an Egyptian. His dress, his, his clothes are Egyptian. His haircut is Egyptian. His language is Egyptian. He is an Egyptian as far as they're concerned. They don't know he's anybody else. He is Egyptian. They don't know who it is. And this guy speaks strange to them, speaks roughly to them, and accuses them of being spies. And then if you would read you know, the next several verses in chapter 42... You should take note of how many times the word true happens in these verses. No, we are true men. No, you're not. Yes, we are true men. We are telling you the truth. If you are true men. And there's this fight over the issue of truth. He's making them reconcile with this thing called truth. Remember the woman at the well. You have to worship in spirit and in truth, integrity, transparency, honesty of heart, in truth. And he started drilling them with questions to which he knew the answers. Why does God ask you questions that he already knows the answer to? It's not to supply him with missing information. You know what it's for? To see whether you're telling the truth or not. Because he knows when you're telling the truth. And this governor starts asking pinpointed, exact, detailed questions of which he knows the answers. How many, there's ten of you, but in your family, how many brothers are there all together? Really, come on. How many are missing out of this bunch? Well, there's twelve of us. Well, where's, where's the other two? Well, you know, there's the one who's with his father, and the other, we don't even, no idea where he is. He's, he's missing. Well, tell him the truth, you know. And what he does is this. He, he brings all of their, 
they're, they're, they're passed to their conscience. In verse number 15, he tells them, I'm going to prove you. I'm going to test you. And here's how the test goes. You say you have another brother. Well, go and bring him back. And when I can see your younger brother, then I know you guys are telling the truth. But here's what it is. For the next few days, I'm throwing you in prison as spies. Now, that's rough treatment from somebody who loves them. That is rough treatment. Now, why does he let them sweat it out in prison for three days? Listen carefully. We have to give time for conscience to do its work. I'm not very enthused about quick conversions. We have to give time for the conscience to do its work. Let the sense of guilt dominate them. Bring this thing to the surface so we can deal with it. You and I want to rescue people too quickly sometimes. We want to rescue them from the pressure they're under too quickly sometimes. Sometimes the pressure is God's ordained school. Don't go help them skip class. You know, let them sweat it out. Let the thing come to their conscience and don't relieve them. Let them reconcile themselves to what's happening here. Don't remove them from the process. And then what happens here in, in verse number 18 of chapter 42, after he lets them be there in three days, where they have a sense that what's happening to us, actually we deserve this. You know, it, it helps waken them up to the seriousness of, of things that they're hiding in their past. And in verse number 18, Joseph said unto them after the third day, This do and live. Well, Moses would say that later, but he never read Moses yet. But this do and live, for I fear God. Now, that's strange to hear an Egyptian say that. For I fear. He's bringing God into their consciousness. If you are true men, then I'm going to keep one of you. I'm going to bind him, keep him in prison, and then the rest of you can send home with some food. Now, while they did this, in verse 21... They said to one another, of course in their native tongue, which they don't know that the governor understands. They haven't got a clue what he says without an interpreter, but he understands everything they say. Isn't that like you and I with God? God speaks to us, we haven't got a clue what he's talking about. But he knows everything that you and I are thinking or saying. And they're saying to one another, not knowing that Joseph is listening and can understand. And he says, oh, we're, we're, we are very guilty concerning your brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we wouldn't hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Are we catching the principle here that they allowed the three days to go like this so that the guilt would do its work. The conviction would do its work. We are very guilty. But I want you to notice that they did not say before God. Oh, we know we're all guilty, but we're not willing to admit our guilt before God. Yeah, I know I really messed up, but you're not confessing how much of an offense you are before God. Conscience is starting to do its work. And Reuben, the guy who's not a good leader, Reuben is the firstborn. Later in the book of Genesis, when Jacob blesses Reuben, Reuben doesn't get much of a blessing. Unstable is water. You know what that means? 
You're going to take the shape of whatever you pour it into. There's no backbone to you at all. You can't take a position. You just mold into whatever you put into. Very poor leadership. He tried to save Joseph, you remember. He was going to get him out of the pit and take him back to his father, but his brothers had sold him by that time. He's a poor leader. And you know, he's got, he's, Reuben's been carrying around this guilt a long time. Boy, if I would have just been on the ball, I could have saved this mess. And he's, he's living with all that guilt. And now that they're all coming under this guilt, Reuben starts lashing out at these others. Didn't I tell you? I mean, and it goes on and on and on. And, but it says in verses 23 and 24 that they didn't know that Joseph understood them. Verse 24, listen, says, And he turned himself away from them and wept. Listen carefully. You think he's rough? You think he's harsh? While he is dealing with those things in your life that prevent you from inheriting, where you can't see it, he's weeping over you. But you don't see it. He's just rough. When the trials of life come across you when you're in pain and you begin to cry out, say, God, why, why, why? Where are you? What have I done? What's wrong? What's going on? And when you're in the deep trial and in your pain and it feels as if God forsaken you, I'm telling you the truth. Where you can't see him, he is weeping over your condition. He is touched with the feelings of your infirmities, no matter what you're going through, and no matter what you're thinking, and how you're perceiving the whole thing. Outside of your ability to see, Jesus is weeping, even as he applies the pressure in your heart. So what he does, when he gains his composure, he takes Simeon. I'm going to take a guess why Simeon out of all the ten of them. Because my guess is that he's the ringleader of the whole thing. You study Simeon through all the scripture, he's one bad apple. He's really a bad person. And he takes Simeon, and in front of them all, they watch this man being handcuffed, tied, whatever they did to him, bound him up, and lead him off into prison. And then Joseph said, Now here's your food. You go. You want to see me again? You bring your younger brother. You see, the governor knows something they don't know. There's another five years of famine, but they don't know that. God deals with you according to what he knows, not what you know. He did not give them enough food the last five years. They'll be back. I'm not going to meet all your needs. You know why? Because you're not going to come back for a relationship with me. I'm not going to meet all your needs. No, sir. I'm going to force you to come back to me. There's five more years. You didn't get enough food for the next five years. You'll be back. But you have to bring Benjamin. And to make it really difficult. You know what that sneaky Joseph did? He says, you know, they think they can buy grace from me. Then they brought all this money. Why don't you put the money back in their sacks? Because you can't buy love from me. You can't buy inheritance from me. You go to boys, you're going to have to learn this is by grace. And by grace alone, put the money back in their sack. And so they don't know the money's back in their sack. And so they're on a, you know, I suppose that journey home is, how are we going to explain this to Jacob? I mean, ten left, nine come back. Every time we go out as a bunch, can we come home one brother less? And here it happening again. I mean, Joseph is gone, and now we're going to come back without Simeon. This is not looking good. And if that's not enough trouble, they have to convince Jacob to let go of Benjamin. And if that's not enough trouble, when they come to camp for the first night home, they open their sacks, and what do they see? They see their money, their silver, 
now the guy thinks we're liars and now he thinks we're thieves and how are we going to get back and here listen God sometimes makes it extremely difficult for you to go back but you have to you don't have a choice if you don't go back you're going to die in your famine I mean when God applies pressure he knows how to apply pressure because they got pressure, you know, from the man in Egypt, but they're going to have pressure from Jacob when they get home. They're going to have to explain about Simeon being missing, and they're going to have to explain about taking Benjamin away. You do understand that Jacob, well, he's only got one son. His name is Benjamin. The other ten don't count. His whole life is wrapped around Benjamin. And when these ten, I'm sorry, nine brothers come back and say that Benjamin word, Jacob flies off the handle. These guys have got pressure in Egypt, they've got pressure at home. When God wants to give you pressure, he knows how to give you pressure. I mean, Jacob flies off the handle and his poor character comes out for sure. But he says, why did you tell him about Benjamin? Are you just going to try to bring my gray's hair down to the grave? What have you guys done to me? And he just berates them and he accuses them. And they're just getting it from every angle. Hey, when God wants to get your attention, he knows exactly how to do it. He's not impressed. Well, guess what? The food runs out. And Jacob says, What are you looking at each other? Go buy some food. Um, Dad, <laughs> have you forgot something? Forgot what? Um, Benjamin? What about him? Well, we can't go back without Benjamin. Why did you tell him about Benjamin? And he laces into them again. He's full of self-pity. He's full of anger. He's a grumpy old man for sure. He's not happy in life at all. He's lost his Joseph. And now he's about to lose Benjamin and Reuben, the one who's unstable as water, he gives some great speech, you know. You know, well, you know, take my sons. Oh, Reuben, get with the program. You know, and now when Benjamin has to be released, there's a sermon here. I think if you think hard enough, there's a sermon. If you want your Benjamin to live, you better let him go. Sometimes you hold on to things just a little too tightly. As long as you hold it to yourself, you'll kill it. Let it go into the unknown if you want it to live. And Judah says, I'll take personal responsibility. He says, Dad, we've got to go. And if we hadn't tarried so much you're arguing about this, we could have come and gone twice by now. And then Jacob has to cave into the situation because God's got his number too. You see, earlier Jacob had said, all these things are against me. Jacob, you just can't see the end from the beginning. This is not against you. Everything you think is against you is for you. This is working in your favor, but you don't know it because you can't see from God's perspective. You've got to believe that everything is for you, not against you. So Jacob says, okay. I know we're in a time of famine, but put together some pistachio nuts and some almonds and some figs and, and all this and make a present for the man and take your money and better take double the money. And maybe he's going to see that this was just an oversight and that you're honest men and giving double the money and all that. And I can just imagine the nine brothers now plus Benjamin on their way to Egypt. Would you please put yourself in their shoes? How are you feeling right now? Extremely fearful. And of course, 
they, Egypt, Egypt sees them coming from a long distance and they tell Joseph, uh, those guys are back. And you can see and there's little Benjamin with him. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, you go meet them. I want you to go fill, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast at my house today. And I'm, you invite all these to the feast. And then they get met by the governor's uh, emissaries that are sent out. And, and uh, the first thing out of their mouth is, we don't know how the money got in our sacks. <laughs> and, hey, the money's not an issue. The God of your father... Put it back. Oh, he's making them deal with God again. The God of your father. Put it in your sack. I have the accounts settled. And then when they hear the disturbing news that they're going to the governor's house for dinner, they are filled with suspicion. He's spying on us. They got this thing spy, you know, running around in their brains still. He's going to spy on us and he's going to have people planted all over the place and they're going to be listening to our conversation hoping that in our drunken state or something one of us are going to talk, going to find some accusation to come get us and then imprison us. He wants our donkeys. And I think to myself, what does the governor of Egypt want to do with your pathetic donkeys? But when you're living in fear, you're not rational. You are not rational. Don't you think the governor of Egypt has got some better looking donkeys than your famine starved ones? You know. So you're coming to the governor's house for dinner. Now they were scared before. You should see them now. Now listen. The tactics have changed entirely. The first time they came, they were rewarded with trial prison accusation. Now they're rewarded with revival. A feast. A banquet. Totally the opposite. And they come into the the governor's house not knowing that revival is just another form of being tested. I hope we can understand this because we live for these special revival meetings and boy, if we can start praying for the sick, if we can start casting out the devil, if we can start prophesying, if we can start all of this, that we're really spiritually with it. I'm sorry, I hope you understand that sometimes these special revival meetings are just another form of a test. Spirituality is not how much you can prophesy, though I'm not speaking against prophecy. Spirituality is not how many hands you can lay hand on how many sick people, though we need to lay hands on the sick. Spirituality is not measured by how many demons you cast out, though we need to cast demons out of people. No, that's not spirituality. I hope you understand character is. I hope you understand character and walking in integrity and truth is spirituality. But sometimes we get these large meetings where all these things are happening and, oh, this is revival. We are on the edge of history. No, you're not. It's just another form of a test. When are you going to understand that walking in love is spirituality? When are we going to understand that? You can do that whether it's revival or there's no revival. You can learn to walk in love. You see, because this revival that's happening at the governor's house is a test. Allow me to explain the test. They are set down and they have assigned seats. Reuben, you sit here. Simeon, would you please sit next to him? What's the nameplate of this one? The third one's Levi. And the fourth one has a nameplate, uh, Judah. And when they all take their assigned positions, they have been seated in order of birth. Ooh, what's going on here? Now, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder if seat number 11 was empty. I don't know. But Benjamin, the last born, is on the very end. And then, it's time to eat. But you got the Hebrews on one side and the and the Egyptians on the other side because they can't sit together. And 
You know, you should have seen the governor there with that special silver cup. Oh, I mean, he, he was just where everybody could see that silver cup. That oh, it was shiny and, and special. It comes time to distribute the food, and well, here's a chicken leg for Reuben. Here's a chicken leg for Simeon. Here's a chicken leg for Levi. Here's a chicken leg for Judah. And until you get to Benjamin, here's five chicken legs. Five of them. And when it starts handing out the potatoes, here's one scoop of potatoes, one scoop, one scoop, until you get to Benjamin, here's five scoops. I think you get Benjamin going, you know, five times as much. Oh, but it was a happy time. They can't understand what's going on. But it is a happy time. You see, the whole world is out there dying in the time of famine. Nobody can eat. And they're eating like royalty in the king's palace while the rest of the world is starving to death, facing famine, and they are treated like royalty. Well, they must have been feeling pretty good. I mean, I can kind of hear the song service going on up there, you know. I think they were singing a song that goes like, Come and go with me to the governor's house, to the governor's house, where there's food, lots of food. And they were singing and singing and singing. But what was happening here in the time of revival? Benjamin... Jacob's now favorite son was being elevated above the ten of them. They have been here before. When Jacob elevated Joseph above them, they were not impressed. And now they are witnessing Benjamin being elevated above them. I'm not sure they would be impressed. All this is happening in the revival spirit. Simeon has been given back to them. We prove that we're true men. The issue of the silver, missing silver, is, I mean, we got away with it. And they're in revival, enjoying revival, singing the songs of revival, living like royalty, with unconfessed sin in their life. Just because you're in revival doesn't mean you are right with God. Just because we're having the meetings where thousands of people come when you're falling on the floor and praying for the sick and casting out demons doesn't mean anybody's right with God. When are we going to learn that's not spirituality? Walking in love is. When are we going to learn this lesson? But we'll run to anything that shakes and miss the whole point of what true spirituality is. Well, the meeting's over. You know what? They get to go home. With their money. With their food. With Simeon. With Benjamin. You should have heard them singing as they went out. They were probably singing, I'm so glad. The governor let us go. I'm so glad. The governor singing glory, hallelujah. The governor let us go. I mean, they have got Simeon. They've got Benjamin. They've got food. And Jacob will never find out any of this. And they're going back after revival full of unconfessed sin. It had been brought to the surface and they never dealt with it. It's covered up so much for revival. They're happy until it's time to camp. And they open up their sacks. You see, because they don't know it, but Joseph had said, you know, they all were admiring my silver cup. I want you to go and put it in sack number Twelve, number 11, the last one there, Benjamin's sack. And after they're away, thinking they're happy, singing the revival songs, uh, I want you to go after them and accuse them of being a thief. 
and say that one of you has stolen the silver cup. And that the governor of Egypt commands that whoever has the silver cup has to come back with me and be his servant for life. And the rest of them are to go home. Listen, he is ordering them to betray Benjamin. They didn't have to be ordered to betray Joseph. He is ordering them to betray Benjamin. And so the chariots of Egypt come running after them. Halt in the name of the governor. One of you's got the silver cup and oh why hey, we're honest men, we're true men. So we brought our brother back, we gave the money back. Do we look like thieves to you? I mean we proved ourselves as true men. What liars? They haven't proved themselves nothing because they've never dealt with that sin of their life. They've never dealt with it. One of you's got the silver cup, but they're so confident, they're in the clear. Oh, whoever has them, let them die. We'll all be your servants. Okay. Let's check them out. And he has to start with Reuben, the oldest, firstborn. And we're going to go through all ten sacks first, because we have to let the pressure mount from sack to sack to sack to sack to sack to sack until you've gone through ten and it's not there and everybody's nervously looking at this last sack. I mean, you've got to let the drama build up just a little bit here, don't you? You have to let conviction do its work. And sometimes you can't convict quickly. Let conviction do its work. Sack number 11. Benjamin's sack is opened and... Sure enough, what do we find? There is the silver cup. All right, you, back with me, slave. And then there's a command. The rest of you go home. They were commanded to forsake Benjamin. Had these brothers changed... Well, you know, because, boy, 22 years ago, they didn't think twice about betraying Joseph. They couldn't care less what that did to Jacob. They couldn't care less about Joseph. Boy, what an opportunity to get rid of that troublesome person. And now here, Benjamin, exalted above us unfairly yet again. What an opportunity to unload this problem. We can go back to Egypt and say, the guy, Benjamin, stole this. He's a slave back there in Egypt. We have nothing to do with it. And they could have been rid of Benjamin out of their hair for the rest of their lives. And they could have gone back carrying the blessing of God. They would have gone home with their food. They would have gone back with the blessing of God, thinking that they had just enjoyed the fruits of revival, gone back with the blessing of God, and they would have missed out the revelation of who the governor was, and they would have missed out what it meant to be a joint heir together with him. Oh, but they had revival. Then they would have died with the blessings of revival, falling short of the purposes of God. To me, revival is not the great thing anymore. One time in my life it might have been. It's knowing God is more important. Whether it's revival or whether it's trial. It's knowing God. It's walking in love. It's character development. That's really important. They don't know that. They are commanded to betray Benjamin. To your surprise, to my surprise, against the governor's command, they all go back to the palace. No, they were supposed to go home with their with their needs met. But they all come back and they are brought before the governor boy they weren't afraid before are they afraid now don't you know such a man as I can divine 
the one who stole that silver cup, my servant forever. Now the rest of you get up and go home. And he commands them again to betray Benjamin. How many times do they get told to leave Benjamin behind? They have been given more and more opportunity to serve their sin over and over again. Then Judah, he gets up and speaks. Notice in chapter 42 and verse 28 is all this is happening. When they found not only the silver cup, but when they went through their sacks, they also found their money. And each time they opened the sack and saw their money, can you just feel the heart drop a little more, sack after sack after sack after sack. Verse 28 says, their heart failed them, and they were afraid, and they said to one another, what is this that God has done unto us? They know now they're not dealing with the governor. They understand they're dealing with God. No, they understand that God is dealing with them. What is this that God has done unto us? Well, they've got to explain themselves. You know, they return back in chapter 44. You know where now they're standing before the governor with Benjamin and the silver cup. In chapter 44, verse 16, Judah, remember he's the same one that sold Joseph? Judah, the one who became surety for Benjamin before Jacob. Judah said, chapter 44, 16, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has been digging around in our hearts, brought it to the surface. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. I wonder how Joseph's doing in all of this time. Because you read already that he wept once. What I failed to tell you is when he saw Benjamin at that banquet hall, he wept a second time. He's about now to weep for the third time, but this time it will be done publicly instead of privately. As he continues to apply pressure to you and me, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he does weep over us very deeply. We haven't got a clue what's going on. But he weeps over us. Indeed. Very deeply. And Judah begins to give what you and I should call a model of intercessory prayer. If you want to understand intercessory prayer, just see how Judah pleads for Benjamin. Just see how he pleads for Benjamin. He unashamedly begins to carry the case of Benjamin as his own. Here's the key to, to intercessory prayer. He takes the case of Benjamin as his own. He feels the hurt of his father Jacob. And that's what motivates him to pray. If you were to read through this prayer, well, maybe I should read it. Verse 18 of chapter 44, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray, you speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servants, for you are as even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked the servant, saying, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his own age, a little one, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. 
And you said unto your servants, Bring him down unto me, that I might set my eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, you shall see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother be not with us. Then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face, except a youngest brother be with us. And your servant, my father, said unto us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he's torn in peace. I haven't seen him, says. And if you take this also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass that when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let your servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to the Lord, and let the lad go up with me to his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. If you want a lesson on intercessory prayer, there you have it. Let me explain intercessory prayer. It means you speak to the one of authority with deep respect. Everybody is your servant. We're your servants. Our father you haven't even met is your servant. It means you approach him with deep respect. It means you admit to the one that you're praying to that you have no bargaining power. All you have is a plea of mercy. No bargaining power. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. You admit that you're not worthy in yourself. You refer to yourself no higher than a servant. And when there appears to be no success in getting any answer, you continue to pray. You pray on, you pray on, you pray on. You acknowledge the sovereignty of God to do whatever He pleases. You do remind God of the facts. You tell Him that He knows it all, but you remind Him of the facts. You demonstrate to God that you have no resentment. You demonstrate to God you have no resentment. And then you begin to appeal to God's feelings and emotions. You don't want me to bring my father's gray hairs down to the grave, do you? And God, if you don't deal with this, that's exactly what's going to happen. And you begin to appeal to God's feelings and God's emotions. And you demonstrate that you have no selfish concern. So let me just finish this session with a thought. And here's the thought. The one who was a free man, Judah, he was told how many times to get up and go home as a free man. When the free man was willing to become a slave so that the slave could go free, Oh, you see, you and I pray for people to become free. But you're not be willing to be a slave in order for that to happen. There is a price to setting people free. Oh, we want to see the power of God to set people free. Yeah. Are you going to take the role of a servant and a slave to see that happen? Or are you just going to say, be free in Jesus' name and think you're going to keep your own freedom? In order to be used of God to set people free, you're going to lose your life. It's going to cost you everything. To have the kind of ministry that's going to set people free. You're not going to be free yourself. Are you understanding that? We just pray for God to set people free, but we're not losing our freedom ourselves. To be the vessel that sets people free, you're going to have to lose your life. Nothing short of that.
nothing short of that. When you and I are willing to become slaves and to lose our lives so that slaves can go free, then you're going to come into something far better than revival. You're going to see him as he is. Because now you're like him. Did you catch that? You'll see him as he is. Why? Because now you're like him. The one who left glory and died upon a cross and gave up his life so that people without life could go free. Now you're like him. Then you're going to get a revelation. I remember preaching this very message in Mombasa, Kenya many, many years ago. It took me two hours and 20 minutes, I believe, with an interpreter. 600 people in that meeting. And you know what happened when I got to that punchline? When you're going to become a slave, so slaves can go free. These 600 people immediately dropped to their knees in intercessory prayer for all the Muslims that surrounded that city. They were willing to lose their freedom so that slaves could go free. It's one of those moments you won't forget. It really is. Where are you and I at in our lives? This is better than revival. It's being like Jesus. And with that, we'll let conscience do its work (laughs) as we take another break.